0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: I'm Will Harris, and today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures.
2: Thursday, 1 o'clock, and once again, you have tuned in to the Heritage Radio Network. You are listening to The Farm Report, and I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks. We're coming to you live from the back of Roberta's in beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn, where things are sprucing up around here. Yeah, definitely come on down if you haven't been by in a while. The um, Everything is in bloom. The 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 roof of the radio station here is actually uh, covered with the greenhouse, and so it's definitely worth worth a peek if you're in the area. But today on the show, we're going to take a little trip to Texas uh, to chat with the guys of Revival Market, Ryan Para and Morgan Weber. Weber, Welcome to the show.
3: Thank you. Hey, Karen.
2: Awesome to have you guys on. So. Um, I, I'm excited. I don't know really much about Texas other than I'm not supposed to mess with y'all, but I think we're going to do a little bit of tesla in here. Um, you guys are located down in Houston. Why don't you tell us about uh, Revival and what you do down there?
3: Sure. Uh, you know, first of all, the Houston culinary scene is just uh, really burgeoning in the past few years. It's a lot of support, a lot of local neighborhood support, a lot of great farms, and, uh, and ranchers have opened up their businesses in the past few years to, to really support the type of thing we're trying to do. And, and what that is is really use products that are around us uh, within 150 miles, whether it be beef, uh, raising our own pork, or vegetables, and then using all those products that are around us in, in the ways that have, uh, you know, brought down European generations, you know, whether it's curing an Italian-style prosciutto and making salami, whether it's just selling the fresh meat, whether it's making uh, prepared foods using those local items, whether it's canning, preserving, and anything under the sun that we can think of, like making vinegars and and syrups as well. So, you know, we we combine all those things in our shop. We're we're a a freestanding market, and, uh, you know, we're open to the public. We're open seven days a week.
2: Nice, and you guys got started back in 2009, is that right?
3: We
4: started, we have a farm about two hours south. Of Houston and Yoakum, Texas, where we uh, began raising pork in 2009, uh, distributing that to restaurants in Houston and Austin, New Orleans. Uh, and we did that for almost two years before we opened the shop, and the shop was kind of born out of the idea to be able to do all the stuff that we really wanted to do in house. Um, me from the Morgan from the agricultural side, and then Ryan from the restaurant. Uh, industry side, it just—it was kind of a natural fit.
2: Nice. So let's talk a little bit about that, Ryan. You actually spent some time up here in in New York City um, in your in your chefing uh, training. Is that right? It, I
3: was uh, lucky enough to work with uh, Chef Jonathan Waxman, and just had a great time. And he he definitely opened my eyes to you know the the seasonal bounty of things, and was a great mentor to me, and had a great time. And and I I love Manhattan, uh, family there. Grew up uh, visiting at least four or five times a year, and still do. And uh, you know, Manhattan definitely has a place in, in my heart, and all, all, as does all of all of the city. So uh, I feel a good tie, and I feel like I learned a lot of good uh, culinary skills and techniques uh, working there. I worked also at the Cirque for. a a year and, and with uh, Chef Patricia Yeo some time ago at, at AZ, where I guess we're BLT fishes now. But e- either uh, e- you know learning those tried and true techniques and being able to apply them here is, uh, I feel like, a, a good fit.
2: Yeah, so you, so you moved back south and you kind of tucked into um, master, mastering butchery and charcuterie. And I know there has definitely been a, a revival, uh, I know, here on the East Coast, and I think Pretty much across the country, of this interest in uh, chefs and food professionals doing their own butchering, working with whole animals, and then the sausage and charcuterie making. One of the challenges uh, often is figuring out who to learn some of those skills from. I mean, where did you where did you pick up on that stuff? Was it trial and error? Yeah,
3: or, or be honest, uh, I, you know, and I, I totally understand the interest, and I'm in that exact generation that a lot around the country that. The chefs are wanting to do everything from start to finish, and, and so I, I totally get it and I totally identify with what's happening around the country. Uh, it was a challenge to learn from from different people. A lot of it is self-taught, uh, reading as much as I can, but we were lucky enough, we, we Morgan and I, brought down a uh, master butcher from Austria, uh, Christoph Weisner, who runs the uh, Mangalitsa Heritage Breed Society in Austria. We flew him down, and we did a, a fantastic seminar with uh, Mosfun Farm, which is just outside of, of, of New York up there. And we went for uh, three days working with Mosfun and with Christoph, and, and did a full uh, slaughter of an animal, eviscerating, uh, then hanging, and then butchering 100%, and then lots of charcuterie work. And that was uh, quite eye-opening, and that was a great start to what we call seam butchery, uh, which is a more European style than the American butchery and uh, that that I learned quite a bit there, and then lots of uh, trial and error
2: here in Houston. Nice. Most fun is great. I think you can catch them here if you're uh, in New York at the New Amsterdam Market on Sundays if you want to try some of that mangalista pig. Now, Morgan, how about you? You don't have a culinary background. You, you came from a farming family but left and then came back to the farm, or what's your story?
4: Uh, that's pretty close. We... Uh, I've always been, I've never cooked professionally in a kitchen, but always been uh, obsessive on the agre- ingredients side. Um, my mom cooked 90% of the meals at our home throughout a week. Uh, at home, we didn't go out to eat a lot. Living in a small town like Yoakum, it's either Dairy Queen or Pizza Hut uh, on any given night if you were to go out. Got it. Um <laughs> Her, you know her philosophy growing up was you can't make uh, bad ingredients taste good. So she grew a lot uh, of what we ate in the garden at home. And uh, I just I guess I kind of just took that with me throughout college and uh, afterward worked uh, in the real estate uh, business for a little while, acquiring property for public improvement projects, like light rail expansions, a lot of boring stuff like that. Um, I,
2: I just finished my I, urban policy degree, so I've spent the last two years talking <laughs> about just that.
4: <laughs> After five years of doing that, I couldn't take it anymore. So we had uh, a lot of land in South Texas that was terribly underutilized, so my wife and I um, decided to start dabbling in uh, in livestock, and pigs made the most sense. It was definitely something that there wasn't a lot of in the Houston area at the time, um, and we we wanted to start uh, the highest quality stuff we could. So we brought in the mongolitsas and, uh, really focused on, uh, diet and, and what the end product would be as it relates to how the pigs are grown and what they're fed. Uh, and it just, it kind of took off from there.
2: Nice. So I, you know, I'm just, I'm taking a look, you actually, uh, were speaker, I think earlier this year at the, um, the Food Waste Texas Symposium, um, you're talking about heritage breed livestock. and So what was it about the Mangalitsa that, that made it the right choice for you? I mean, when you were looking at kind of the, the options for heritage breed pigs, did you consider some other ones, or why did that one jump out in particular?
4: We did. We started with Gloucester Olds, a small herd of Gloucester Old spots, um, and then just started doing a lot of research with the Mangalitsas. They had just been imported. About a year previously, um, and not many people had them at the time. So Michael Clamp for at Most Fun Farm uh, sent us a loin. We got a bunch of chef friends together, uh, cooked it and tried it. All really loved it, so we brought it down. Um, also, the charcuterie scene was just starting at that point in Houston. So everybody seemed to be dabbling in it, and it was uh, it was timely to bring in a, a breed that really did well with uh, with curing. And
2: what is it about that? I mean, is it the meat-to-fat ratio? Is it the size of different cuts? I mean, why, why is it such a good fit for charcuterie?
3: It's uh, the type of fat. It it's a, uh, really melts in your mouth, uh, really incredible uh, flavor and texture. And then also and the, the ratio of meat-to-fat is very high on the fat side. And when you're doing charcuterie, that aids to the advantage. So, you know, a big, nice fat cap when you're doing, you know, shearing the loin, say, is just uh, fantastic. Somebody puts it on their mouth when it's done, and it, it truly melts. And, you know, it's hard to get that in some of the Texas breeds that I had used previously. And speaking to that uh, moment when we brought in the manga Mangalisa for the first time, and we were there trying it, it really was a night and day beside, you know, uh, what we would call a high-quality Berkshire that we had bought here in town and did a taste taste test. It was really uh, magnificent animal and magnificent flavor. And uh, we love to use it here. Uh, right now, 100% of our charcuterie is done with the Mangalitsa, whereas we sell other uh, heritage breeds on in the fresh meat case. So we, we're, I think, a firm believer in it, and um, it's, it's working out really, really well. Nice. You know, and it's, it's not for everybody. Like, we don't sell it. It never really makes it in the
4: fresh meat case because people are so, you know, we get a lot of pushback because of the amount of fat mm-hmm. on it. Um, But uh, procuring has been phenomenal.
2: Excellent. So now you had mentioned uh, in your intro that you guys kind of set a self-imposed 150-mile barrier for, for your procurement. I mean, I belying some geographical ignorance here didn't realize that houston was so close to the water so can you talk a little bit about you know kind of what's lying within that 150 miles i mean are there things that are the houston region is really known for i mean i always think beef when i think texas but is there other stuff going on there that really sticks
4: out for you guys well it's it's kind of a self-imposed 150 miles but within that 150 miles there is so much available to us um Bycatch out of the Gulf is uh, really getting popular in our area. You know, when snapper fishermen go out and uh, drop a ton of ton of lines, they don't necessarily always catch red snapper. But by the time those fish have fought on those lines for, you know, the hours before the fishermen come back to pick it up, you know, we we want to utilize as much of that product as we can. Um, we've got a lot of guys raising lamb in the area, pork in the area. Uh, we are a big beef state, so uh, there's there's people that are really, really trying to do a great job with beef. Um, we've got wonderful cheesemakers. We've got bread bakers. We haven't really had to go out of that radius. We're not legalistic about that radius by sure any are. means, but we haven't really had to go out of that radius. We've got antelope that's coming from Broken Arrow Ranch. We've got quail coming from Bandera. Uh, it, it's just fortunate that we have all this available to us. Now, when we can't get something like maple syrup or uh, dried beans, uh, or any, you know, Anson Mills has been a good resource for us. We will go out because we want to be able to provide our guests with a, a complete experience and not compromise in quality. So we look for like-minded companies throughout the country to kind of help achieve that
2: nice now did you guys n- notice any anything on your end with regards to the the bp oil spill in the gulf area
4: um mostly i would think mostly a, a media concern it it shut down some fishing for
3: a while but you know we didn't i, I would was, say the oyster beds were greatly affected as i'm sure you read about um so there was a somewhat of a dearth in the oyster production this year, but the fish, uh, we haven't seen too much of a change. Unfortunately, a lot of New Yorkers are liking the gulf fish right now, so the prices are skyrocketing. Uh, but, you know, we still have some of the, uh, the fishermen down here that give us you know, nice local fish on a daily level that comes straight, straight from the docks, and that's really the stuff we're, we're looking for and trying to provide. Um, but you know, the, the impact, of course, you know, it exists, and it's substantial, and I don't think we've yet to see the true impact of it. But yet we are still getting shrimp, fish, and, and uh, the oyster season did just end. As I said, that one was kind of short and small this year.
2: Okay. Now, one of the things that we were chatting about kind of pre-show is is distribution issues. I mean, when you are uh, you guys are working in the supermarket environment, I mean, I know kind of across the board, you know margins are tend to be razor thin and there's always this pressure to you know drive prices down 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 and and working with farmers you want to be able to you know ensure that they're able to provide a quality product and that's going to come at a higher cost and and then moving things around i mean how are you guys managing to stay competitive with like the whole foods and, and other area retailers while still kind of staying true to the values that you found at the shop on
3: sure that the the most important thing to us is quality so we feel like if we offer the quality we're going to put it at a fair price and we you know we mark it up on a basic you know business management level we're not you know we're not trying to go either way we're not trying to push down prices nor inflate them so we we really just go true cost and and the once we have the quality of the ingredient established we really just try to make that stand out and i cook the you know the dishes that you know, we put out on prepared foods or, or, uh, preserved foods. You know, something that I would feel comfortable putting in the best restaurants in Houston. And I think that's something that the other supermarkets, uh, don't do right now. You know, to be able to serve a, a high-end restaurant quality dish in a market-driven atmosphere is, uh, something that at least right now is unique. And that's, uh, we, we tread on those waters. And then in the fresh foods, we, Offer the best ingredients that we can find.
4: We're, it's, const, it's a constant uh, battle for us to manage those costs. Like you said, when margins are are thin, uh, we're constantly trying to come up with creative ways to get as much out of the animals that we possibly can when they come in, which means not throwing, you know, really anything away. We utilize every possibly can, not because it's... You know, Cliché or chic right now, but just because we have to do that, like ends
1: meet.
2: <laughs> yeah, sure. And then uh, Morgan, how do you feel like? Because you're kind of on both end of the spectrum. You know, you're on the producer end, and then you're also running the business and in- interacting with, with the public. There, I mean, as, as a farmer, I mean, what do you see of, of the as the benefits of working with a market like yours versus kind of putting your product into a more traditional model?
4: we constantly you know when I would drop pork off at restaurants before the the market opened we would uh, we wouldn't ever get to see what the end product looked like I mean we might be able to go and eat it but here I'll drop you know we'll have pigs the day after we process them and immediately get to see the results of what we've been working on so it's for us it's resulted in a you know one continuous experiment of constantly trying to tweak and get the product better. Um, we've gone through about eight different heritage breeds over the last three years, and uh, it's been a direct result of that. You know, we'll raise something to market weight, and if if we don't like something about it, then we won't do it that way again. We'll tweak the feed ration, we'll tweak the uh, the genetics that we're uh, using to for breeding stock, and um, it's just constantly constantly evolving.
2: Nice. Well, it's so great and to we have that to back that. and forth yeah, of, of information. Guys, thank you so much for, for joining us on the show today. If people want to hear more about you, uh, where do they go?
4: In, uh, check out revivalmarket.com. We're also pretty active on Twitter. Uh, you follow us at Revival Market and also on our Facebook page.
2: Awesome. Ryan, Morgan, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks We're- for having us. Thank thanks you. for having us, Yeah, great, great to hear great from you. With You too. So we are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will have Stephanie Fisher on the line to give us an update of her farm internship experience. I saw this off without any words. I got so high I scratched till I bled I love myself better than you. I know it's wrong, so what should I do? The finest day that I ever had was when I learned to cry on command. I love myself better than you. I
1: know it's White wrong, Oak Pastures so is, is a 146 year old multi generational family farm that works in cooperation with nature to produce artisan meat that is safe, healthy, nutritious, and good to eat. Without fail, we ensure that our production practices are economically practical, ecologically sustainable, and that the animals are always humanely treated. We never falter in our determination to conduct our business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com
2: got to put on the zip code I love myself better than you I know it's wrong so what should i do I'm on a plane. I can't All right we are back you've tuned into the Farm Report on the Heritage Radio Network and we are on the line with Stephanie Fisher Stephanie welcome to the show Hey Aaron it's great to have you. So, Stephanie, we worked together at Heritage Foods USA over the past year or so before you left to go pursue a internship with Consider Bardwell Farm. So maybe we'll start there. Can you tell us a little bit uh, about how you got up to Consider Bardwell and, and what you did while you were there?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so we, um, I've, I've always wanted to go into farming, and my boyfriend, Noah, also always wanted to go into farming. Um, and we ran into Margot and Alex at the Goattober event. Um, Margot and Alex are the farmers at Consider Bardwell um, last October, and we sort of just introduced ourselves because, obviously, having worked with them through Heritage, we really liked what they were doing, and I always wanted to work with animals. so We sort of introduced ourselves, and then, kind of um, sort of they sent us an email in December and said so they were looking for some kidding interns, and we were like, well, that's, you know, this is kind of like, we're to transition in our lives, we're young, so like, let's, let's just do it. So um, we packed up our apartment in Brooklyn and uh, drove our car up to Vermont and moved up there for two months, um, working closely under Margot and Alex with their kidding program, um, basically helping all the, helping them with all the goats give birth. So they say, about 90 does, so they had about 180 or so kids by the time that we left.
2: Wow. So, I mean, what was that like? Where did you guys stay? What time did you get up? Like, what? how was the transition? I mean, going from, you know, Bushwick to, to West Paulette, Vermont?
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, it was absolutely a transition. I mean, we've always, we've always loved the country life. Like we we grew up in, the, both of us grew up in the Hudson Valley. Um, so we're, you know, obviously West Paulette's really rural um, and the community is really great. So it was definitely a transition from, you know, Brooklyn, but I don't know, but Brooklyn kind of prepared us for that, too, because, like, there's a lot of awesome things going on in West Palette in terms of, like, food and community and, like, sustainable thinking. Um, so it wasn't too shocking, um, but we did live in the West Palette Fishing Game Building. We lived upstairs. Um, there was no uh, heat or hot water um, and no shower, so we did a lot of our showering at Margot and Alex's. And um, they very nicely let us use their shower. Um, <laughs> For it, their it benefit was, was as well. <laughs> it. Um, but it was also an adventure. It was only two months. You know, we had these little space heaters. And um, we spent a lot of time with Margot and Alex anyway, so we weren't home that much. Um, but we'd get up around 6 or 6.30 and get to the farm around 7 o'clock. And, um, and you know, it, it. I guess it was a, a kind of a change going from sitting, you know, in front of a computer, uh, 40 hours a week to working with your body 40 hours a week and like being on your feet all the time. And, um, you know, we're, Noah and I are both in pretty good shape. So it wasn't that much of a, a struggle, but I definitely, like, I, I'm, I, I talk about this so much, but being small, like I'm five, three and like, you know, 110 pounds or whatever. There's definitely some things that like, I kind of had to figure out how to do on my own, like lifting a five gallon bucket, like, you know, full of whey, like it's, it's not that hard for most people, but I've had to like figure out different ways to like pour it or to like carry it, you know, without hurting myself. And, um, so that was kind of interesting.
2: Yeah. Sounds, sounds like also probably a really cute time. I know the baby goats are so adorable. Did you get attached to anyone in particular or?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, we definitely had our favorites. I mean, they're, you know, out of 180 kids, um, we got to know maybe like six or seven really well, and they sort of just became caricatures and like part of our lives, even off the farm we kind of like we like gave them names and like gave them these these voices that they talked into us and <laughs> um, so that yeah, there was a, a couple theres there was one baby that was like uh, a four pound little run thing um, it was number twenty four and it was. It wasn't developing uh, the same way the other kids were developing, so it kind of had this like monkeyish face, and it was really, really ugly looking, but it just had this little place in our heart. And actually, Margot and Alex recently sent a picture of us, or sent a picture of the the little guy to us, and he's only gotten more ugly.
2: uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think we can be attracted to uh, both beauty and, you know, individuality let's leave it at that so you guys spent two months at consider bardwell and then you had a plan to head out to the west coast so i think what you guys bought a car drove across country and your plan was to work for another goat farm on on the west side of the country so tell us what happened there
1: yeah so we um when we first got the job at consider bardwell um we were like well you know like let's let's leave brooklyn forever like let's just go like i've always wanted to go to the west coast so we we went on the atra website um and we were kind of looking through their internship and apprenticeship listing and we found this one farm um on the on the west coast in washington uh, right near omac and we were like oh this is great you know like they're a smaller farm they have a small herd about 30 goats or so and they also had cows and chickens and they wanted to get pigs and they do um they had like a little garden, they also do timber, so, and it was an older couple, and, and we were like, well, this is great, like, we'll we'll get sort of the um, intensive farming stuff down at Consider Bargo, they have a really large herd, they're specialized, and then we'll go and kind of see what a more diverse operation looks like. Um, so, really pumped, so we passed up everything, goodbye to both our families, and drove across the country, and we had agreed to stay with this farm until October for six months, um, and we had a phone interview with them and everything, and it was, it all, was, all sounded great. Um, and we saw some pictures online. Uh, so we, we get there, and having, I mean, we were pretty spoiled at Consider Bardwell, and that it's a farm that's gorgeous, you know, it has a lot of money behind it, so it's well-maintained, and, and also Margo and Alex are really great farmers, so they really take care of their animals. And, I mean, that's not necessarily being spoiled. That's just a, a good standard to hold. So we are driving through um, Western, eastern Washington, um, and we pull up to this farm, and there's just like, there's, you know, tons of like old rusted machinery all over the place, and, and like, there's, you know, the animals all look kind of thick, and, and, uh, they're all like, they all just like, they have these like, like weird, like nylon twine collars, and, and the chickens are like kind of running around their own filth, and it was just like a real shock to, to us having come from, You know, a really well maintained farm to something like this. And, um, but we were like, well, you know, we kept telling ourselves, like, not everyone has all the money to maintain their farm, and, like, every, you know, don't judge a farm by its cover. Like, let's be open minded about this. Um, and we lasted about a week, and, you know, until we, you know, we slowly realized, like, the farm wasn't maintained, um, not because of a a lack of, of money or, um, time it was just a totally different style of farming that we were um we didn't necessarily you ran into some bad
2: farmers it sounds like
1: basically yeah yeah and I hate saying that because like every farm has their own sort of stick and and you know I don't want to be judgmental mental about that but we just didn't want to inherit any of those sort of farming practices so we decided to leave
2: so, you know, I think as in any profession, you know, there's people who who do things in ways and, you know, that are different from what you might choose. But then there's also people who just don't do a good job. And so it's interesting from your intern's experience to go from kind of one extreme to the other. And then you find yeah. yourself, you know, across the country from your family and friends and, and without a job. And so what 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 did you do?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, we... So, um, we've packed up all our things after only being there for six days, and we were still within like our week-long trial period. So, um, like you know, under our contract, so to say, we were still allowed to leave. So we we just packed everything up Saturday morning, and you know we don't have that much stuff. So it only took us an hour to pack up the car, and you know we said goodbye, said so thanks, you know thanks for everything, and um, drove to a cafe in town, and. You know, both of us the whole time are like in shock, like you know, adrenaline's running. Like we've never done anything like this before. Like yeah, we're totally near nothing. Like Eastern Washington is basically a desert, like, and it's mostly Indian reservation So um, you know, it's a very far cry from the East Coast, and it's also like really, really right wing. Um, so we're in just like a place that we are totally out of our comfort zone. And um, we go to a cafe, and we're like, okay, game plan. We're gonna go to the after website. We're going to go to like Woof. We're going to go to Good Food Jobs, and we're just going to like write down a list of any farm that we you know that we think could work, and write down the phone number, and then just give them a call. Um, And so we made a list of about twenty or so farms, called every single one, and and most of them had their intern intern positions filled, but a lot of them were really helpful. They're like, okay, well, you know, if you're interested in this, check out this farm. Here's a good number to call, Um, and So we just, you know, that night we camped in the Wenatchee Forest um, outside of a little town called Leavenworth. Um, And, you know, our our heads are kind of, like, spinning with, you know, well, do we want to farm? Like, you know, we were so kind of shocked after having a bad farming experience, after coming from such an awesome farming experience that we started to think, like, well, is it farming that we don't like? Or was it just that farm? Or, like, what is it? And, And, like, what are we doing? Like, we both have, like, college degrees and, like... We both had well-paying jobs, and all of a sudden, like, we had no income and no home, and we're, like, camping and living out of our car, and, um, but we just had to, like...
2: Adventure! You
1: know, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, and, yeah, also, we're really fortunate. Like, we have family that can support us, so we weren't really in that bad of a spot, but it was, yeah, it was definitely sort of an existential um, moment for us, but we, yeah, we were really insistent on making it work, so we kept calling around.
2: Yeah, so what happened? Um, sorry what happened
1: oh okay so for five days so for five days we basically drove all across washington state we crossed the cascade three times we visited about four different farms um and the whole time we're visiting these farms and because i remember when i was looking for places to go after consider barb me some really good advice You were like you know try and talk to past interns on the farm and if you can visit the farm and and obviously we couldn't visit a farm in Washington when we were on the East Coast, but that advice you've given me was like, I was like, no, we have to go to every single farm. Like if we're going to work there, we have to visit it. You know, I don't want to get into another situation where, you know, the website says one thing, they sound like nice people, but it's it's a totally different thing to be um, working there and to be under the farmers. Um, So we, yeah, we visited four farms. um, And when we were visiting them, we were kind of making a list of the things that we wanted to learn and the Types of farms that we wanted to learn from, um, and for goats at least, I was like, "Well, I want to make sure that they're a part of um, the American Dairy Goat Association, that they do um, DHIA testing, which is Dairy Herd Improvement Association, because that to me is a sign of a, a farmer who really cares about their animals. If they're willing to register them, if they're willing to test the milk, then they obviously um, are taking good care of them. So that was my kind of standard." And, um, and Noah was a little more loose. He's like, I just want to make sure I work with vegetables and you know, do some sort of organic production. So that's what we were looking for and he visited all the farms. Um and we visited two farm the two of the farms that we visited just turned out to be total bust. Like again, it was the same thing. Websites are great. They had um, one of these places had Oberhogly Goats, which is what we were just working with, and um, we were super excited we got there and it was just like total, a total mess and um, the goats were healthy, but the place was, like, it was one woman running the whole show, and she had, like, uh, eight or nine interns living in this, like, trailer park city on her property, and they were all a bunch of, like, ex-Seattle, like, grunge kids who aren't interested in farming at all. They just wanted to, like, live for free and work, basically, and they were all, like, smoking cigarettes and, like, you know, shooting the sit around the around the table, and we're just like, okay, we, you know, we want to be working with people who are also trying to to you know be a farmer or like learn farming techniques so we were like yeah hey, that's not going to work and then we drove all the way across the state to visit another farm Um it's like this well-renowned um, french creamery uh, in dayton washington kind of like the southeast corner and it was beautiful it was like kind of a little bit bougie and they had alpine goats and the goats were really healthy looking but then it was kind of the same thing as the other farm the woman was just like totally insane and she actually um, she when she met me, she, she was like, oh, so what are you interested in? I was like, well, I'd like to be a dairy farmer. And she was like, you? She's like, honey, dairy farming's hard work. That's what you got him for, right? And put in my boyfriend. And as soon as she said that, I was like, we're out of here. Oh, man. <laughs> so where did you guys was, end up? Oh, so we, well, we ended up on the um, western side of Washington at Leftfoot Farm. Um, we're about 30 miles or so um, west of Mount Rainier, about an hour south of Seattle, um, but it's still pretty rural, and uh, we are working with dwarf goats, believe it or not, <laughs> um, something that I, we never thought that we would do. Um, I think dwarf goats kind of have this strange reputation in the dairy farming community, but we're here nonetheless, um, and it's awesome. We have a really nice setup, and we're basically um, in charge of a quarter-acre garden. Um, we're raising 62... Um, meat chickens right now and we do evening milking and it's a we live on the property and it's a really great setup so it's i think it was worth the five day the five day trek. sure so yeah definitely
2: we are just about out of time but uh, maybe before we go i mean if you had to say like your top three recommendations for someone in your position who you know was kind of looking to get into farming, wanted a chance to to do the internship experience, uh, what would you say to them, kind of knowing what you know now?
1: Yeah. um, I would say the first thing is, like, make a list of of your ideal farm. You know, like, right now, like, map it out. And, I mean, obviously that's going to change. Like, our farm has changed in the past, you know, three months or whatever that we've been doing this. But make a list of, like, the things that you want in your farm. And then look for those things in farms that you go to um second thing is like you said visit the farm just like if you can do it um and talk to the farmers like really get to know get to know them and then I guess the third thing is also like and this kind of contradicts the first thing but I think it it also adds like a nice contrast is um be open-minded like we didn't think that we'd ever want to work with dwarf goats but yet here we are like happiest can be working with dwarf goats um so yeah those are probably my top three awesome advice
2: Stephanie thanks so much for joining us and I look forward to um hearing more of your adventures send some pictures so we can we can put them out on the Facebook and the Twitter feed so people can see yeah see what a dwarf goat looks like.
1: (laughs) They're pretty hilarious looking. But yeah, for sure. Thanks so much, Erin. Awesome.
2: All right. Well, the farm report is going to be on vacation for the next two weeks. We'll be returning on June the 14th. We'll have Sandor cats in studio to talk about fermentation. So make sure to tune in. And until then, enjoy the ride.